If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 4. You're just going to stay up here with me today, huh? There we go. You're good. Hey, if he wants to hang out up here, that's fine with me too. I don't mind. We're, we're in Matthew chapter 4 today. Uh, this is going to be one of those days, just full, full prep work for you. Uh, there is a lot of biblical page turning. So we're going to go from Genesis to Psalm, back to Genesis, to Exodus, to Isaiah. So just bear with me. Um, if you want to follow along, you're welcome to. If not, I'll try to keep you up to date on what, what all these texts are. They are in the back of your bulletin with some really weird looking notes. I recognize that, but, but you'll keep track just fine. I promise. But we're going to start out in Matthew chapter 4, then backtrack all the way to Genesis, catch back up to Matthew 4, and at the end try to piece everything together. Sometimes as I'm working on sermons, one of the things I try to think about, and this is going to sound so cliche, and I don't, I don't mean it to sound cliche, but I, I try to think about if, if somehow we got to have like the embodied form of Jesus come be at First Baptist, that we got to just announce, hey guys, you don't want to miss it. Next Sunday, Jesus himself in the pulpit preaching, bring your friends. Number one, like we could get a really big crowd in here. That would be so fun. But number two, I, I was trying to think like, what would he speak about? What would Jesus's sermon be on? And I don't just mean that in just like a what would Jesus do, so I want to do the same thing type of deal, but I mean that just in a very like literal, Jesus has 30 minutes to preach, what is he going to preach about? Um, and so I was thinking, what, what would Jesus say if he stood right here? And, and I think the way you answer that question really tells you a lot about how you understand or who you understand Jesus to be. So if you're thinking like in your mind, Jesus may show up and teach some sort of morality code. He's going to tell you, you know, how to have a really good marriage. Here's 10 tips for a good marriage. Or if Jesus is going to show up and he's going to do some sort of, hey, you really need to pray, guys. Praying's important. Maybe that's what he does. He just shows up and he teaches some level of morality that's like, you need to act and be this way. Or maybe he's going to come tell some parable. And if it's here in Portales, it's probably going to be like a parable about cows and farming. And he's going to somehow tie something profound into cow farming because Jesus did stuff like that. Or he would show up and he would teach about radical love. Just, hey, love those. Even love those who hate you. Like, be that type of person. Or he would push for more social justice. Go care for the poor among you. Go take care of those in need. Your answer to all of this really defines what you think about Jesus. Maybe you see him saying, hey, you're, you're a sinner and you need to repent of your sins for the forgiveness of those sins. And by the way, I think every one of those things I listed are really kind of like on the docket of possibilities for what Jesus may very well come and speak about. But I'm not really sure any of them actually encompass what I think his main point would be. What the central purpose of what he would have to say would kind of come across. Rather, they're all kind of an extension of what I think Jesus' main purpose. And I'm getting this from what the gospel authors write as the summary of Jesus' message. Because at least in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John's a little bit different. We don't include him in what we call the synoptic gospels, but even John to some extent. Uh, when they come in and they're talking about Jesus, in the beginning of their gospels, they always quote Jesus saying something like Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Or Luke chapter 4 verse 43. It is necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to other towns also because I was sent for this purpose. This is what happens in the New Testament over and over and over again. They portray Jesus as teaching what they're going to refer to as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of 
heaven. In fact, that word kingdom is used some 162 times in the New Testament, and it is almost always in reference to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God falling right from the mouth of Jesus himself. In fact, Matthew 4, 17, which we'll read, just says the same thing. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. See, I really think that if Jesus were to be here at First Baptist today, there's like a 99.9% chance his content would have something to do with the kingdom of God. That's what Matthew wants to tell us. Let me start reading in verse 17. Matthew says this, From then on Jesus began to preach, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then as he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going from there, he saw two other brothers, James and the son of the James. Uh, and the son, of De- the son of Zebedee and his brother John. I kept wanting to say James and John, the son of Zebedee, and my Bible didn't translate it that way. They were in the boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their, uh, and their father and started following him. Verse 23, now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought all to him who were afflicted, those suffering under various diseases and intense pains and the demon possessed, the epileptics and the paralytics. And he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee to the Decapolis and Jerusalem, Judea and beyond the Jordan. Over and over again, right, at least two times just in this, is Matthew's kind of setting the stage for what Jesus is about to start doing in his ministry. Matthew is framing Jesus' conversations and his teachings as centralizing on the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. So far, Matthew went as far as he can to just lay out the identity of who this person Jesus is. He's laid out his claim that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. He's the king come to rescue his people. He's demonstrated Jesus as greater than the embodiment of evil itself and the temptation in the wilderness. And now he's going to launch into the ministry and the life of Jesus for the rest of his book. And these stories that he's going to include and these things he's going to talk about, it's not just things that Matthew was thinking back and he's like, ah, that's a pretty interesting story. I might include that one. That day was pretty boring, so I won't talk about that day. Like every story Matthew's giving has an intensive purpose. There's something he's trying to communicate to you, to me, to us, the reader. He's inviting us in to this proposal. Will you let Jesus be king? And if so... What does it mean then to live under the kingdom of Jesus? Now, here's, here's our problem with all of this. We, we don't use kingdom language in modern-day America. It's very seldom, unless you like, have a really intense boss who like, sees themselves as the king of your workplace, which does happen, we don't use king language. We don't use words like rule and reign. There was something that happened like 250 years ago where we literally revolted against a king to not have to talk about that anymore. Like that's the roots of America. But for the Bible, this, this language of kingdom literature and reigning and rule and dominion, it's something that has been picked up on over and over again throughout the Bible. So if we're going to understand Matthew, I think the way Matthew wants us to understand it, we need to try to get back into that context where we're a little bit more familiar with the kingdom language of the Bible. 
So just full, full disclaimer, uh, this isn't just dots I've connected. This is heavily influenced through guys like Dr. Tim Mackey with the Bible Project and my Old Testament professor in seminary and some things like that. Don't ever think, wow, Philip's so smart. I just steal stuff from other people, just so you know. Um, but that's what I want to do. I just want to take five, ten minutes. Let's be honest, probably like closer to ten minutes. And do a tour through the Old Testament of all the different times, not all of them, but a couple highlight moments where this concept of kingship and kingdom and rule and reign and dominion come up for, for consideration. So trivia point, do you know when the first reference, where the first reference of kingdom language is within the Bible? You can cheat and look on the back of your notes and probably see Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, I'm sure many of you are very familiar with this passage. My Bible won't stay open on it. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this passage. Uh, God is uh, just very directly creating the world. He's designing it. He's orchestrating creation. And so by the time you get towards the latter half of Genesis 1, God has put everything in place and in motion. He is the king over all creation. But then when you jump into verse 26 through 28, God zooms in. And as an extension of creation, he makes a unique creation. And God says it this way, Genesis 1, 26. God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and they will, and the word in the Bible is rule. You may have dominion. They will have dominion over, or they will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And then 28, he, God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And again, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, every creature that crawls on earth. So what's, what's the picture here? And so I, I try to like animate this a little bit or put it kind of in visual for you. So I have some slides and in the back of your bulletin we'll see this. But we start out, God is the creator of the earth. He is the king and author over all creation. But then God appoints co-rulers of earth in man and woman, in Adam and Eve. God creates man and woman to rule over earth with him. God creates man and woman to rule over earth with him. That's that first little brink. Next slide, Kelsey. I mean, just think about it. God instills man and woman with the capacity to do things that no other created thing can do. That no other created thing acts like, thinks like, talks like, moves like, acts like. There is something that is just totally different. Men, women, humanity, we don't just inhabit the earth. We're not just mere passive creatures trying to survive. We're active. We, we remake the earth. We develop it. We, we change it. I mean, do you guys understand? We of all people should understand this. We live in a desert. We are not creatures equipped to live in a desert. I don't know about you. I get sunburned really easily. It's not what I was like. That feels like not what I was made to do. And yet somehow we still live in a place where there's no water, but we're working currently on, I say we're, not me, my tax dollars, your tax dollars, are working on getting a pipeline from Ute Lake up in Logan, dug all the way down to Portales so that we can keep having water. We keep going out and remaking the world to suit us, to fit us, to allow us to survive and thrive. No other animal does something to that capacity or that degree. 
We do music, we do arts, sports, philosophy. We go out and look at a sunset and we're bewildered by the beauty of creation, the never-ending desire to study, to learn, to understand, to drive, to set up systems and institutions, to pass down that knowledge all for flourishing and growth. Why do we act that way? Because God made us in his image to co-rule as kings and queens over creation under his rulership, under his kingship. And if for some reason you're looking at that and you're like, Philip, that still feels like a stretch. I I don't know. I would just kindly take you to Psalm chapter 8. In Psalm chapter 8, it's just this psalm reflection over Genesis chapter 1. And it says this, when I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you set in place, what is human that you remember him or son of man that you look after him? You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. That word crowned him? You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the sea. Psalm 8, the psalmist seems to be reflecting back on Genesis 1 and saying, we're, we're crowned with something. We are rulers over this creation. So the invitation, the point of Genesis 1 and 2 is that God would create co-rulers underneath him to allow him the authority of right and wrong, of rulership over the world, but would follow him in that. And the question dangles, will humanity trust God to be the true king or will they seek to take rulership and authority for themselves and define right and wrong on their own terms? If you've read the Bible, you know how Genesis 3 ends. You fast forward just a few chapters and humanity begins to long for the position of God. They long to rule and reign not as deputies of their creator, but as kings and queens without any authority over them. Man and woman seeks to rule without God. That we would rule in place of God. And then the rest of the Bible, from here to the book of Revelation, to the point we're living in right now, is this ongoing plot conflict between this reality of creation rebelling against its creator, of man and woman rebelling against God. That men and women will seek to build their own kingdoms rather than seek God's kingdom. They'll seek to take matters into their own hands rather than trust God. They will continually rebel against God. And this is going to happen on micro levels. It's going to happen even as God seeks to step in and start changing things, as he calls out a family to redirect and reassert his kingdom again, that even this family, Abraham and Sarah, they're going to take the promise of God for a family again into their own hands to establish their own kingdom rather than trusting God. Jacob cheating out his brother of the birthright, reaching out to take again the fruit for themselves rather than trusting God's provision. But as we begin to read the Bible, it also happens on macro scales. Where people rise to power and they establish kingdoms, not just over small situations, but literally establish kingdoms and nations. And there's a couple of these, Lamech, Nimrod, these types of guys. But if you keep reading the story, there's a prominent figure that becomes the big, bad enemy king of the world. The beginning of Exodus, it's a guy that we just often call Pharaoh. Pharaoh rises as the embodiment of full detriment of humanity attempting to take control for himself. 
He redefines good and evil for himself. He doesn't blink twice at using violence and oppression. That's, that's the key words. He uses violence and oppression to establish his kingdom and protect his power. So if there's anyone that would seek to take away his power, he does not hesitate twice to kill them, even if it means murdering babies. That's, that's Pharaoh's idea. I'm going to maintain my power however I see fit. Even if it means oppressing an entire other nation and using them as slaves to build his kingdom the way he wants to see it built. The Bible portrays this as this is what happens when man seeks to usurp the kingship of God and establish kingdoms of our own. It always results in violence and oppression and taking advantage of other people. In this case, who are the ones that fall into victim to Pharaoh's oppression. Well, the very people that God was raising up to put a stop to this pattern, Israel herself. So Pharaoh stands against God's plan to reassert his rule and reign through Israel. So the question we get asked then is, how is God going to respond to this? And there's a whole other conversation to be have here about a child being spared from the tyranny of this king, raised up to defeat the very king he was saved from, under all, all of this stuff is being played out in this. But God confronts Pharaoh, he goes toe-to-toe -to, -toe to him, and the decision's made. Who is really king of this world? God conquers Pharaoh. There's ten plagues, there's all of this stuff happening, but just to make a long story short, God conquers Pharaoh. He leads his people out of slavery and captivity in Egypt into the promised land. And they go through the Red Sea as this marker of salvation from slavery to freedom. And if you go to Exodus chapter 15, it's this big, long-form poem. This long-standing poem that they're going to sing to God as they march through. 15.1, Moses said the Israelites sing this song they said, I will sing to the Lord. He is highly exalted, for he has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. But I, I want you to particularly look down towards the end of this passage. And in verse 18, it says this. The Lord will reign forever and ever. That, that word reign is just the Hebrew word melech, which is the Hebrew word for king. Another way to translate this is God is king forever and ever. It's this statement of God reasserting his kingship over the world. Oh, and what happens when God reasserts his kingship over the world? The enslaved are liberated. The oppressed are set free. Those that are caught up in something stronger than them are freed from that thing. This is what happens as the Bible portrays God overseeing his kingdom in the world. And to mark this further, God then is going to lead Israel to a mountainside. And he launches this covenantal relationship with them. And God wants to make clear through this nation of Israel what it looks like when man once again lives as co-rulers with God as the king of all creation. They're supposed to be this nation that's totally different than all the other pagan nations. They're supposed to be this nation that's demonstrating God's rulership over the world and, and how do they do on that? How good are they at demonstrating God's rulership? Well, if you know the story, it's not all that great. In fact, many of their kings turn out like miniature pharaohs. Even their good kings 
make selfish decisions to pursue their own desires. David uses his kingly rights to take a woman that wasn't his wife and then kill her husband to cover it up. David does not hesitate to use violence when it means preserving his own power. He's a miniature pharaoh. Or Solomon compromises everything he believes in for the sake of riches and women and status. And then it's just a downward spiral from there throughout your Old Testament. And the question still lingers. How on earth is God going to assert his kingship over the world when it seems like his own people don't even want to live under God's kingship? With that question in mind, I would take you to Isaiah chapter 10 and 11. In Isaiah chapter 10, Isaiah is reflecting on this idea and just how broken Israel has been. That their kings didn't hold up to this promise that God set up at Sinai with them. And so David's reflecting about what happens if Israel doesn't change. And he says this at the very end of chapter 10. He says in verse 33, Look, the Lord God of armies will chop off the branches with terrifying power. And the tall trees will be cut down. The high trees will be felled. He is clearing the thickets of the forest with an axe. And Lebanon with his majesty will fall. Here's the image that it's getting at right here. Isaiah is portraying God as a lumberjack and Israel as the forest. He's saying Israel has grown, but they've not grown the way God intended them to. So God's going to come through and he's just going to clear the whole thing out. This is in reference to Babylon and Assyria leading them into exile, chopping down this nation into a shell of what it once was, ramsacking the kingdom, overthrowing the temple, leading Israel back into Babylon in exile. Now, that's where Isaiah ends the story, right? Just, woe is us. No, no, of course not. Because we put a gap between chapter 10 and chapter 11, but, but keep going. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. Now, again, we've got to connect some dots here. Many of you know, but Jesse is the father of King David. So the stump of Jesse is in reference to kingship. So there's going to be a little branch growing up out of this stump, out of the king stump himself. Meaning that what is this branch going to grow into? into? This branch will grow into the king. That, that's the image. And this king's going to be unlike any other king because, verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, and he will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. The point being, he's not just going to listen to what the world tells him and be corrupt in assuming that that's right. He's going to instead entrust the spirit to let God the king be the true king and he be the co-ruler the way God created it back in Genesis chapter 1. But he will judge the poor righteously, verse 4, and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth, king, kingship of rulership, and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. The righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lay down with the goat. The calf and the young lion, the fattened calf will be together. A child will lead them. A cow and a bear will graze. Their young ones will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like cattle. The infant will play beside the cobra's pit, uh, pit. And the toddler will put his hand in the snake's den. And they will not harm or destroy each other. For the land will be as full as the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. That's a, how much of the sea is filled with water? 
How much of the knowledge do you see the illustration there? On that day, the root of Jesse, back up to verse 1, will stand as a banner for the peoples, and the nations will look to him for guidance, and the resting place will be glorious. What's the picture of Isaiah 11? Well, there's a king coming from the kingly lineage of Jesse that will come to restore rule and reign over the earth once again. Oh, and what is his rule and reign going to look like? Absolute peace where the lamb and the lion lay together, where everything is as it should be. And who's going to come under the banner of this king? All the nations. That's Isaiah 11. Everyone is going to come under the banner of this king. I think I took like 20 minutes for all of that. So. But here's, here's what we understand. Isaiah's prophecy is going to play out. Babylon's going to lay siege. The forest of Israel is going to be chopped, led to serve another evil king in the same vein as Pharaoh. And he's going to take charge, and again, he's going to use violence and oppression to establish his rule over everything else. And that's just going to cascade into bigger and badder king to bigger and badder king because it won't be long until Persia comes and takes control over Babylon and Assyria. And then uh, Alexander the Great and the Greeks come and they take control over all of Persia. And then Caesar and Rome comes and they take control all of the Greeks. And it's just bad king after bad king after oppressive, violent, bad king. And we're left wondering... When is this king going to come? When is this king going to show up and usher in his kingdom? Because even though some of the Israelites got to return back to their land, the dream of it becoming a kingdom free from the influence of evil kings and kingdoms never really comes true. So what happens when you're 400 years deep into this pattern, steeped into this story? And this man begins making rounds from town to town teaching Repent, the kingdom of God is here. Do you understand how big of a message that is? Do you, do you understand why hundreds upon hundreds of people are starting to follow this guy when they understand this story? Jesus' main message is, is not, I love you so much, now go love your neighbor. Jesus' main message is not, here's some moral teachings to make your life better. They wouldn't have killed Jesus for that. It's not like Jesus was like, love your neighbor, and the Romans and Syrians are like, let's kill him. Doesn't follow. But instead, Jesus is coming in and saying, I'm bringing a new kingdom. And this is far more of a loaded gun than just love your neighbor. You see, no matter how much we try to portray Jesus as some moralistic, wise sage, the gospel writers portray him into who he really was. He is the one reasserting God's rule over the nations and kingship over the world. Do you see why Jesus gets himself killed? Now, do this for me. Imagine yourself as a first century Jew. Just imagine yourself in that type of situation. You, you've grown up with this as your story. You grew up with your granddad telling you about the days when King Solomon ruled over Israel, and Israel was the most powerful nation on the planet. He's told you stories about King David, and you've read the Psalms of how David was a man after God's own heart. But now Caesar Augustus sits on the throne and he actually stole the farm from your Uncle Tom. And so with all that, you know, he's gone. And now he's a bondservant in his own land. 
and the Roman government keeps coming in and raising taxes more and more and more, and you're thinking, when do we finally get our land back? When do we finally get the kingdom that God's promised? And then Jesus rolls up in your synagogue one day and says, repent, the kingdom of God is here. Tell me that's not going to get some visceral inner response from you. Some sort of feeling of what this means. Some level of expectations that Israel's finally going to get placed back on top. That Jesus is about to do to Augustus what Moses did to Pharaoh. Now here's the problem. Is that what Jesus does? Is that the expectations Jesus meets? Not really. Because his kingdom is not at all what anyone expects it to be. Rather, the kingdom that Jesus ushers in is a kingdom unlike any other human organization in the history of earth. So what is this kingdom going to look like? Well, that's what we get to spend the next, like, four months on, because that's exactly what Jesus launches into with the Sermon on the Mount. But just to give you a taste and to get you ready for it, it will make you angry. The Sermon on the Mount will make you blink twice and say, Jesus, I don't really think you mean what you're saying. Because Jesus is going to come out in the Sermon on the Mount and he's going to say things like, hey, in, in my kingdom, you may think it's the really influential and important people that matter, but actually it's the people that have no importance whatsoever. Those are the people that matter in my kingdom. In my kingdom, you actually don't rule by power and oppression and violence. You rule by submitting yourself under other people and serving them. In my kingdom, I actually tell you how you can and can't use your body because I'm, I'm the king. And I'm just telling you, lock in because Jesus is probably going to offend you. And I'm going to do my best to like make it not as offensive as possible. But Jesus will offend you. Because Jesus sees himself as king. And he sees himself as reasserting God's kingdom over all of earth as the stump of Jesse, as the root growing out of that. See, Jesus doesn't get killed because he teaches love and morality. Jesus is killed because he teaches a kingdom that threatens every single thing you think is normal. That's the gospel. That's the good news of the coming kingdom of Jesus. Everything you thought was true is now changed. So what is Matthew trying to tell us through all of this? Why, why does this matter? And I was trying to think of how, how I wanted to say this, and the best I could come up with was something along the lines of this. This year, we're, we're seeking to intentionally live like Jesus. Get ready. Because intentionally living like Jesus means he will ruin your kingdom. Jesus will ruin your kingdom. He will subvert your expectations. He will lay siege to your way of life. If it seems a bit over the top or harsh to you, I would just invite you back into Matthew chapter 4, where Matthew is portraying Jesus calling his first disciples, and Jesus just kind of waltzes out to the shoreline and says, hey, I know you guys have made your livelihood by fishing, but you're done with that now. Follow me. Give up your way of life. Give up your own father. Give up all of that and pursue what I now Offer Without hesitation, Jesus is saying, I will lay siege to this kingdom so I can build mine. Give up your kingdom. The invitation from Jesus is not a nice little sign your name to our church membership uh, so that you can go to heaven when you die. 
It's not a ask Jesus in your heart and come back to church a few times a year to get your annual pat on the back. The invitation is the kingdom of this world, including your little kingdom that you're building, stands against God's intentions. So he has come to ruin that kingdom so that he might build his own. And you might be saying, Philip, how is that good news? That sure doesn't feel like good news when I put all my time and energy into building this little kingdom of my own. And I think Jesus would come in and say, yeah, but you will never find true life in that kingdom. You'll never find the purpose of living in the things you build or the things you think are important. No, my kingdom is actually the only place where true life is found. My kingdom is the only place where actual forgiveness abounds. My kingdom is where real love is experienced and lasting relationships are built. Because the reality is your kingdom, our kingdom, the way we try to comprehend and make sense of the world will only land us in heartache and brokenness and despair and anger and power grabs and desperate attempts to maintain our status at all costs. It will ruin our relationships and it will leave us broken. Because it is a kingdom ruled and motivated by sin. Because since Genesis 3, we are a people ruled and motivated by sin. But what did Jesus come to do? Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. He came to save us from our sin. Inviting us to join him in his upside down kingdom. So, so upside down, in fact, that remember how Pharaoh gains his power through, through violence and oppression? How does Jesus gain his power? By being oppressed and killed himself. Jesus subjects himself. He embodies the full message of his own kingdom. He is oppressed and murdered, submitting to his oppressor, like Isaiah will say, like a lamb before the slaughter. And he's inaugurated king over the world but it's unlike anything you ever thought possible. So this is what we'll be getting into over the next few weeks. This is what we celebrate when we celebrate Lord's Supper, that God the King has come, and he has declared himself king, not by conquering and bloodshed through someone else's blood, but by, by being conquered and shedding his own blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And this is counterintuitive to everything you believe or have this world tell you. So it comes down to a reckoning moment. Do we actually believe this is true? Do we believe that the way to impact Portalis is actually to come under and serve Portalis rather than to rule over and reign over with power? Do we believe that the way to change those family members that are so against the gospel is to serve them and love them with everything we have rather than try to control them with manipulations? Do we believe that if God wants to build his kingdom, it might mean ruining First Baptist's kingdom. Because the kingdom of God is not just about this church. And the second we think that it's about us getting bigger and us being important and us gaining money or us gaining influence or us gaining status, we have totally lost the purpose of the church. It is about building the kingdom of God. So we're going to have a few minutes for you to reflect on that. What does it mean that Jesus will ruin your kingdom? And are you ready to follow such a savior? Maybe you never have and you want to talk to me this morning. I would love to talk with you about what does it mean to let your kingdom be ruined. Because at first it may seem like not the right idea, but I promise it brings with it so much freedom. Like the Israelites passing through the Red Sea. And maybe you've already done that, but you just get distracted and you just need to come back to God and say, God, 
I'm building my own kingdom again. Take it. I need yours. Maybe we as a church need to just say, God, we trust you to build your kingdom here, whatever that looks like. And it means us giving up ourselves. We give it up. But this is your chance to respond, and then after that, we'll celebrate this kingdom by reflecting how our king was inaugurated king. Father God, thank you for your love, your grace, your goodness. And God, I pray that as you pour out your love to us, that we would see just very clearly what it means to be a part of your kingdom. God, let us